Chasing Lights Chapter 6 Why is there so much garbage? Now, all living things leave a trail behind. We learned early on to quickly identify the droppings of a moose or a bear. The droppings of humans were challenging to notice because they were everywhere. Like busy wallpaper installed years ago, we just didn't notice the cans, bottles, cigarette butts, papers, and candy wrappers. We, we left civilization, but it followed us wherever we went. We couldn't spend the entire summer at Lower Russian or exploring the wilderness. A lot of time was spent in town, where we played in the neighborhood. Since it was unfinished, there were several areas that had become impromptu dumps. Cars were abandoned on the empty streets, and old furniture was tossed in the valleys between piles of gravel, topsoil, peat moss, and mulch that filled empty lots. Cans and bottles littered every unbuilt lot, and the streets were carpeted with broken glass. And sometimes on a beach, you find pale colored stones that are sometimes green, yellow, or blue. They are almost transparent, but the sandblasted surfaces make them translucent, letting just enough sunlight through to glow with color. When I first saw them, I had no idea what they were, but they seemed magic. You know, maybe they were diamonds. I collected handfuls of them, but then I learned that the colored beach stones are broken pieces of glass, worn smooth like every other pebble. That made me value them less, I think, but it shouldn't have. Those stones were even more beautiful because they weren't permanent. Starting as sand, they had become bottles, then stones, and in time, they will be sand again. Colored stones that glow for a moment in time. Beautiful garbage. Our neighborhood was like a beach, so when I went street combing, there were different glass puzzles to collect, glass that somehow holds all the shattered pieces together. What is that? Car windshields, I guess that's, that's why stones rarely break through the front window. How, how wonderful. Thick glass with curious ridges on one side. What could that be? It took me a while to figure that one out. The glass was always under streetlights, and when I looked up, most of the glass was broken. Ah, streetlight glass. That's why it looks so much like the glass in a car's headlights, and the ridges probably help focus the light. Of course, there was also colored glass from beer, booze, and wine bottles. A little easier to figure out, but all of it interesting. And thanks to that carpet of glass, unlike Tom Sawyer, I never walked around barefoot. Early in the summer, the local schools organized a weekend cleanup. Each school 
would display a shiny new bicycle in the library or front lobby. Even though I had a great bike, it was difficult not to want a new one. To get it, we would have to clean up the neighborhood. Every garbage bag delivered to a checkpoint would net one lottery ticket for the bike. Now, early on Saturday morning, my brother and I showed up at the checkpoint and were given a garbage bag each. We knew where to find garbage. So did every other kid in the neighborhood. We started filling bag after bag with cans, bottles, and paper, then brought a full bag to the checkpoint for another bag and another ticket. Then we started working on the abandoned furniture. In some cases, we would join up with other kids to carry something like a couch or a bed mattress. We then negotiated with the parents manning the checkpoints to see if we could get three or maybe even eight tickets for the broken sofa. Now, the older kids went after one of the abandoned cars, first tearing off loose pieces, then pushing the entire car down the road to the checkpoint. They got a lot of tickets for that one. We worked all day, harder than any of us had ever worked. Our faces smudged with dirt and the biggest smile a worker ever had. I still remember when the checkpoint gave us each a soda pop and the taste of grape soda with dust and salt from our lips. It felt like we were getting the better end of this deal. I never won the bicycle. No matter how many tickets I earned every year, but after it was all over, I realized that the bicycle wasn't that great, really, and that I was better off with what I had. That's not to say I didn't occasionally experience bike envy. I did, and I still do. There are so many beautiful bicycles in the world. A neighbor kid had a Stingray bicycle uh, built by Schwinn in the 60s and 70s. The Stingray was built like a chopper or customized motorcycle. The seat, instead of being pear-shaped like most bicycles, was a long rail, sometimes called a banana seat, which was surprisingly comfortable. The rider's weight was low and right on top of the rear wheel, while long handlebars made up the distance to the front fork. Now, some of them had multiple speeds controlled by something that looked like a gear shift in front of the seat on the top bar. The front wheel was often smaller than the back, while the back tire was slick, just like a muscle car. That meant there was no tread. It was just a flat, smooth tire. Not very fast, not very safe, and not very elegant. It, it's difficult to understand now why the Stingray was popular then, but it was a bestseller every year. Why? Because it was awesome. A kid is less concerned with riding fast on the road and more interested in making jumps, uh, skidding tires, and riding trails. And years later, the Stingray was replaced by a better engineered BMX and mountain bikes, but it was truly beloved back then. I never had one, but my brother and I got to ride a neighbor's Stingray from time to time. It was awesome. On the street, we built a ramp by placing one end of a piece of plywood on a rock or brick. The trick to jumping is to lift the front wheel up just before going over the edge. That way, the bicycle lands on the back wheel or ideally on both wheels at the same time. Now, jumping was an especially popular activity for us at the time because of an early reality TV star, Evil Knievel. A former insurance salesman and hockey player, Mr. Knievel had a knack for crashing his motorcycle while attempting outlandish jumps. And the crashes made him more and more famous, even as he broke more and more bones, somewhere between 30 and 50. I remember he planned to jump the Grand Canyon, 
we all thought that was amazing. And as we jumped our little plywood ramp, we pretended we were going over a canyon too. And to our disappointment, Mr. Knievel never jumped the Grand Canyon. He did attempt to cross the Snake River Canyon in a little missile of some kind, but that was disappointing as well. The neighbor kid with the stingray also had an evil Knievel action figure complete with his red, white, and blue jumpsuit. Now, just a quick note here. Dolls are popular with boys as well as girls. Now, back then, most of the focus was on G.I. Joe with his various combat accessories and uniforms. However, since our culture is still a little confused about what it means to be male or female, we call a boy's doll an action figure, even though it's used the same way a girl uses a doll for imaginary play, defining aspirations, and exploring different identities. I wonder what would happen if we called a doll a doll, no matter who played with it. Well, when we landed our jumps, the coolest thing to do was jam our pedals backwards, engage the brake, and skid. We competed to see who could leave the longest skid mark and who could raise the most dust in the process. Now, for extra panache, we turned the front wheel to skid in a circle while we would put one foot down. The Stingray was the perfect tool for this. That slick tire left quite a bit of rubber on the road as we skidded in circles. Now, around that time, we also attached playing cards to the frames so that the bicycle spokes would make a chop-chop-chop sound. We imagined that it made them sound like a motorcycle. It, it didn't. But Mr. Knievel didn't really jump over the Grand Canyon either. How much of our world is imagined? Now, from time to time, I'd spot an old stingray in a flea market somewhere. And I miss the feel of that slick tire skidding under the seat. Not enough to buy one. <laughs> I might end up breaking a few evil Knievel bones at my age, but there remains a little itch at the back of my mind. Now, at that time, the U.S. was involved in a war with Vietnam. On the news at night, there would be regular dispatches from the front while newspapers presented what war looked like. It didn't look good. No one wanted to talk about it. So we turned away. We played war games, but when we played, we emulated what we had learned from World War II movies, built models of German, English, and American tanks, and set up little plastic army men to secure our forts. There were no Vietnam movies at the time, and if there were, we would have looked right past them. The forts were part of a battlefield that took up an entire backyard garden. Where there used to be lettuce, beans, and tomato plants, now there were roads, no man's lands, anti-tank barriers, and airplane runways. We spent days on our knees lovingly creating space for our tanks, jeeps, and army men, and then we would destroy them. Cannon fire and bombs were simulated by putting a screwdriver in the ground and kicking up all the dirt underneath, and tanks would roll along before getting stuck or surrounded. When we got tired of that, we then upped the scale by fighting ourselves. See, a few kids had a toy pistol, rifle, or machine gun. The rest had parents that didn't feel comfortable giving their kids guns, and today I believe that to be a completely reasonable thing for parents to worry about, but to me at the time, I didn't see the logic. At some point, my father compromised and gave us toy guns that looked like something from the Civil War. They were 
impressive replicas made from wood and metal, but they weren't automatic machine guns, and that's what we needed in the war games. So my brother and I picked up sticks and declared them to be machine guns. We weren't the only ones to do that. The war games were played with two teams, each led by a captain. Just like a regular sport, the captain would take turns picking their favorite candidate to join their side. And once everyone was chosen, we scattered and proceeded to try to take a hill without getting found out and shot by the opposite side. Whether with stick guns or plastic guns, we all shot our targets the same way, with our mouths. Mouth sounds were used for machine guns, pistols, hand grenades, and even bazookas. It was so much faster, louder, and more responsive than any toy trigger could be. Each side tried to ambush the other and either kill or take a prisoner. The, the mouth guns would go ablazing, and when the dust settled, we would argue about who was killed, who was injured, and who, like John Wayne in the movie True Grit, managed to dodge most bullets without more than a scratch. After arguing a bit, most of us would end up with a flesh wound on the left arm. The battles were fought in vacant lots, gravel pits, and bits of untouched scrubland still on the subdivision. It was a wild, noisy, and exciting game. So many heroic moments played out just a block or two from home. One that stands out happened on a pile of gravel surrounded by a few trees and underbrush. Narrow and taller than the trees, the top of the pile had an unobstructed view of the entire battlefield. But that meant that everyone had a perfect line of sight to whomever might stand on top of it. Therefore, no one ever climbed it until my brother did. He stood on top of the hill with a rifle and a pistol stick in his hands, mowing down everyone in sight. He swung his guns back and forth. He rotated 360 degrees and was in total command of the battlefield. He surprised everyone and looked incredibly cool while doing it. He stayed up there for a while, but eventually someone yelled out a gunshot behind him. He recoiled instantly, dropped his guns, staggered, then began to fall down the hill. Like a gymnast, he dropped down, then somehow rolled upright, then dropped down again and again until he rested in the brambles at the foot of the pile with a fat grin on his face. That is how you do a death scene. Sticks were excellent guns, but they made even better sabers. Now with sticks in hand, we were transformed into a character from Robin Hood or Captain Blood. My brother was afraid of no one. He defended justice and brotherhood before all else. And he just had so much style, even in the first grade. There's a photo somewhere of my brother and me on a beach filled with driftwood. He's in the foreground, crouched on top of a bleached log that's four or five feet up in the air. He's wearing a white shirt open at his chest and the sleeves unbuttoned, holding a stick downward like a dagger. He's ready to strike from above. Meanwhile, below, I stood on the beach facing him in a red windbreaker zipped all the way up with a stick over my head and really not much conviction. My brother was magically transformed as if the ghost of Alexander Dumas had shared all the secrets of swashbuckling style with a seven-year-old. And it took longer for me to hear the voice of Monsieur Dumas. For some reason, 
I was afraid to let the imagination dance the way it did with my brother. I kept seeing disaster and was unsure that I was strong enough, brave enough, or cool enough to do something like that. Eventually, I, I built up some courage. I even took a class in sword fighting, but of course, I could never have the unmitigated joy my brother had then because, well, I'm an adult, but I can get close. The memory of him leaping with a stick in his hand gets me there. Alaska sometimes felt like a big playground, but there was a real edge to it. It wasn't just my childhood anxiety. It was dangerous. Almost four people die every year due to bear attacks. Over 2,200 people are lost in the wilderness every year, twice the national average. Sometimes their remains are found. The proportional rate of deaths due to hypothermia is 10 times higher than the rest of the U.S. Proportional alcoholism and drug abuse rates are the highest in the country, as is sexual assault. 167 people die by gun every year, also the highest proportional rate. We're number one. Now in the bush, you can't make too many mistakes or have too much bad luck. Breaking a leg can be fatal when a hospital is hundreds of miles away. Getting wet can be lethal. Crossing someone who is armed and everyone there is armed could end badly. People were often a little off balance psychologically and therefore not to be trusted. I learned to keep feelings hidden and constantly plan through worst case scenarios. Fortunately, everyone has talents or special powers that help us get through the challenges. My father had amazing luck. My brother had unbelievable endurance and daring. My special power was a compass in my head. Even in the middle of nowhere, I always knew or felt what direction we were going and where we had started. And getting older, living in cities and leaning too much on the GPS in my phone, the compass is not as reliable as it was growing up. But back then, it was rock solid. See, once we hiked up a mountain from a boat, the mountain wasn't very tall or steep. It never got above the tree line. So it seemed like an easy walk for everyone. And on the way back, we became disoriented and started going in a direction miles away from the shore where our boat waited. Anxious and unsure of myself, I, I steamed for a bit. Now, why is everyone going the wrong way? Weirdly, it, it made me angry. Somehow, I felt that they wanted to put us all in danger. But finally, I got over myself when my mother asked if I thought it was the right way to go. And I said, no, we should be going to the left. And she replied, well, you always know the way. Everyone changed direction. I felt so foolish for getting worked up about it, but so grateful that my mother had such confidence in me more than I had in myself. Swashbuckling. It worked in stories about 18th century France, but maybe not in the real world of Alaska. Or maybe it did, uh, a little, when it came to bush pilots. Working in single-engine planes, bush pilots landed 
anywhere there is a little open space. They flew in any atmospheric condition short of a volcanic eruption. They were a crucial connection for villages all over the state, delivering everything from mail to groceries to people willing to take the most thrilling ride around. They were like World War II fighter pilots we saw in movies, and, and they kind of looked like them with their leather jackets and baseball caps. It, it took a while, though, before we learned that many of them actually were World War II fighter pilots. Now, most people don't know that part of Alaska was occupied during the war. Two islands in the Aleutians, Kiska and Atu, were held by Japanese soldiers for 14 months in 1942 and 1943 before U.S. and Canadian fighters succeeded in repulsing the invaders during the Battle of Atu. Bush pilots were our version of the British RAF. Whenever we heard one of their Cessna single-engine planes, we would all run to a clearing and wave up at the sky until they waved their wings back at us. They almost always did. There was an elite class of bush pilots called the Glacier Pilot. Only a few of them were left, so named because they knew how to land on glaciers a tactic used in World War II to get around the Japanese occupiers. I don't know how, but at some point we became friends with a glacier pilot. He was a quiet, older man, calm, but quick to laughter. I can remember him standing on his heels, a bit of extra weight in his stomach, hands in his pockets, assessing a possible runway. He was probably always assessing where he might land. He rarely put floats on his plane because it slowed him down in the air, and instead he usually just had wheels or skis. Most pilots used floats, since any lake is a perfect runway, flat, open, with no trees or telephone poles in the way, and our glacier pilot would just find an open field somewhere, a quiet highway, or I suppose a glacier, to set down. He flew very low to the ground. I, I don't know if that was to stay below radar or to improve chances of surviving a crash. His relationship to risk was different from most people. In his mind, a good flight, no matter the weather or turbulence, was one where he landed intact. A good landing was one that he walked away from. He had two sons the same age as my brother and me. Both inherited their father's risk tolerance. And whenever we got together, it seemed that disaster was close by. Once we visited their home near Glen Allen for dinner. Now, Glen Allen is a town of 440 people 100 miles north of Valdez. In my mind, it was mostly just an intersection where the uh, Glen Highway met the Richardson Highway. An old tractor was in front of their house near the driveway. It looked like it was from the 1930s, covered in rust and oil, and sometimes a tractor like that can be found in an old farmyard, perhaps, where it broke down decades ago and has become a piece of garbage slowly rusting to nothing. This piece of garbage sitting in the glacier pilot's yard couldn't pull a plow, but it still had some life left in it. After the grown-ups went into the house, one of the uh, risk boys asked us, Want a ride? None of us were old enough to drive a car, so of course the answer was an enthusiastic yes. All we wanted at that point was to drive stuff, preferably something large and loud. So that's what we did. Taking turns, tearing up the front yard in an old tractor going five miles an hour while it belched diesel smoke into the air. 
Two of us would ride at a time, taking turns and managing to get tossed off the seat more than once. The tractor was oddly configured, with the wheels close together in both the front and the back. And at its widest, the entire tractor was maybe three feet. As slim as it was, it was also tall, more than five feet. It looked like a large, old-fashioned, rectangular suitcase sitting on its edge. The driver's seat was attached to the back of the suitcase, as if the manufacturer almost forgot that someone would need to drive the thing. It was so tippy that it made a Jeep look stable. I don't think we managed to spin out that sad little machine like we did with bicycles, but we tried our best to do so. And by the time we were finished, the yard was a sea of mud, and the engine was backfiring ominously, while the gears weren't catching as well as they did at the beginning of the night. We heard that a couple of weeks later, the tractor was dead. That didn't surprise me, but what did surprise me was that this was the plan all along. The old tractor was expressly bought as a toy to be destroyed by the boys. It was fun. So much so that I still remember it, but um, we easily could have gotten killed by that thing. Now, every road has a steady path of garbage alongside it. It usually isn't visible unless one stops and gets out of the car, but there on the shoulder and in the ditches is the layer of cigarette butts, cans, beer tabs, candy wrappers, and shell casings. The path that we leave behind isn't made of asphalt, as pavement usually decays in five years or so. The longer-lasting path is garbage. Everywhere we are, it's there. Even the natural environment has trash. Inside animal nests, it's common to see the natural elements supplemented by plastic wrappers, perhaps for waterproofing. Garbage dumps are favorite places for animals too, just like they are for kids. But instead of hunting for scraps of wood for a treehouse, they come for dinner. Beyond the city, everyone has their own dump, usually hidden away from the house. Everything from old motors to scrap wood to the usual kitchen garbage was there, and it was a good thing, too. With no hardware stores nearby, where else could one find a piece of metal a certain size that could be used to fix the hinge upstairs? A garbage dump is the closest I ever got to a bear. We saw bears pretty frequently, but usually kept a distance. Our dog, Ralph, always found the bear first and then tried to frighten it away with his brave barking. He never got attacked and, and quickly would stop barking and back away along with us. Now, once without Ralph, we came around a bend in the path to a garbage dump. A bear was happily rooting around. My mother described the sound it made as an old man with heartburn. It sounded strangely human, but looked like a giant, obviously, but nothing happened. But the memory of being that close stays vivid. We were more than happy to hand over all the garbage to the bear. Good eating. Brown bears are large, and most of the time they move slowly unless provoked. Our strategy was to not provoke them. It seemed to work, as none of us were ever charged by a bear. Getting charged is the beginning of the end. You know, built like a freight train, able to run very fast and even climb trees, nothing will stop a bear at that point short of a cannon. 
An old timer once told my brother and me that the best thing to do with a gun when charged was to point it at our own heads before shooting. Frightening thought. Well, like every other kid growing up in the 1970s, I was haunted by a public service announcement on TV that started to air in 1971. Probably the best known public service announcement ever. It was produced by Keep America Beautiful. And in it, an apparent indigenous man in a traditional costume canoes up a stream where he comes across more and more litter in the water. Then, when he gets out, he walks through more and more garbage, only to have a paper bag of trash thrown out a passing car that falls at his feet. At the end of the spot, the camera went in for a close-up while a single tear fell down his face. The announcer then says, People start pollution. People can stop it. I think about that image now, and I still want to cry. I felt tremendous guilt about the pollution I found all around me. Guilt, along with anger, at everyone throwing things out their windows. But, but later I realized it wasn't completely as it seemed. For one thing, the indigenous man was an Italian-American actor. And for two, the Keep America Beautiful campaign was funded by the America Can Company, the Owens, Illinois Glass Company, Coca-Cola, and Dixie Cups. It wasn't part of the environmental movement. It was a public relations effort to switch the blame and the protesting away from companies producing throwaway trash and towards the consumers. Meanwhile, the companies lobbied hard to get rid of bottle return laws. It seems to have worked. They aren't blamed for our littering anymore, and very few people in the U.S. get deposit money for returning their bottles. When someone throws garbage away, even responsibly, it still ends up in the environment. A dump is still part of the world, even if it's hidden. Garbage, it gets out. It spreads. It's all around us. Garbage is the environment as much as a tree or a mountain stream might be. Hiding garbage may not be possible anymore. At the same time, trash can be useful. It can even be fun. So perhaps we should ask more than just how to get rid of garbage and maybe think about how we can make garbage better, more beautiful, and maybe helpful.